Amen. You may take your Bible and be seated. We'll be in Amos chapter 7 today. And if you need or would like to access a uh, church Bible, pew Bible, it should be one beside you there. Somewhere on the row, and that'll be on page 769 in the Pew Bible. So Amos 7. Now, I want to be honest with you today about the sermon. This was one of those more difficult ones. And, and not so much as it's not... There are some things that are kind of hard to understand in the passage. So I'll admit that. There are. But there's also just a lot there. I mean, it's a good, good, good passage. And we could just dwell. We could do a sermon on each of these visions. We could dig in there and think about it and uncover a lot of things. So there will be lots of things that maybe we read in the passage today that you're like, well, wow, why didn't you talk about that? Or, or whatever the case may be. And I'm sorry we can't talk about all things, but we will focus on, I think, the major issue and thrust of the passage today. Now, when I was... Um, uh, well, I guess it was, was it, I want to say when I was a young man, but I wasn't that young of a man, a young, younger man than I am today, Linda. So when I was a younger man than I am today, a friend of mine offered me a book, and he, and this was when, um, you know, sometimes it's like uh, Jake Patton and I rode to Presbytery together Friday night, and we were talking about books we were reading, and he's like, I always have to keep a novel out there going, you know, just to kind of release my brain. And I'm not as good at that as I used to be, but back then, when I was a little bit younger, man, and maybe smarter, I did that. And so this book that this guy recommended to me was a, uh, a book, uh, kind of a fantasy-style book. And he said, I want you to, you know, this will be a fun book, a good read. It's, it's really good. It's a great story. And I think you'll enjoy it. And he said, just remember, he just said this a passage, just remember the first book's a prequel. And I said, okay, great. And so I got into the story, and the storyline was pretty compelling. It took a little bit, you know, sometimes it takes a little while to get into that. Storyline's compelling, and the, there's this young man in the story, because it's really about younger men at this point in the story. And this young man... Um, it's just trying to find his way. He's discovering who he is. He's going off to this, it's for a better term for it, a camp for people. It's, it's, in a, you know, it's a fantasy book, so it's a different world and different things and stuff like that. So he goes off and you see him and you see his storyline and you're looking at it and you're thinking, man, this is great. He is the key. He is the key to the whole story. So you're reading and you're seeing him discover himself. You're seeing his, his gifts and his abilities and the things that his God has given him, that type of thing. And then within like three pages of the end, he's betrayed and killed. And so I'm in the book and I'm like, like Luke Skywalker, no, you've got to be kidding me. And so I'm thinking, this has to be one of those, oh, he wasn't really killed kind of things. You pick up the next book, and it truly was a, 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 a prequel. Years later, his widow wife is the first character in the chapter. And I'm like, how in the world could you set us up like that? And then kill off the main character. And then those words came back to me. Remember, it's a prequel. Well, in, in our lives, we too can, can get into this. Especially as we read the book of Amos. And we can get into that same feeling of uncertainty through the text. Amos has given us a, me, a, a message of judgment he, to uh, exile Israel. 
Uh, he has identified their current abuses, their violence, their oppression, their empty rituals, which pointed to their unwillingness to turn from true worship to meet God. And because of this, the Lord will meet them in judgment. Authors can draw us in, invest us in characters, a plot, and even a side storyline, and then completely move in a different direction. Why? Because they're in charge of the story. Well, maybe as we've read the Bible, we're pulling for Israel. We're hoping that they're going to do what God wants them to do. We, we are looking at them and we are pulling for them and we are encouraged by them. And sometimes we're discouraged by them, by the foolishness they get into. But all the while, God is taking care of them. But here in Amos, he says, I'm going to judge you. And we wonder, what is he going to do? So after the lament and the woes in chapters 5 and 6, the next section of the book moves to the unveiling of judgment through visions and their implications to the people of God. So we are left to wonder, will God be the hero? Will He be the hero? Will He be prepared to stand by His earlier promises and rescue His elect? Well, let's turn to Amos chapter 7 this morning. And let's read this text before us. Amos chapter 7. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, He was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O oh Lord, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, that the Lord God was calling for a fiery uh, a judgment of, by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O oh Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also, this also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what the Lord, this is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Ahamaz, the priest of Bethel, said to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel, and the land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jacob shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from the, his land. And Ahamiah said to Amos, O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. 
you say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from his land. This is the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this word. It is unsettling to our hearts as we have heard the case through Amos of judgment coming. Now comes the proclamation of judgment. Now it comes to it. And so we are, as God's people, as your people, shaken by this. We, we look back and we can see the sin, and yet it is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And so this morning, Lord, I ask that you would uh, make clear this passage. Help us to see in it your justice and your compassion and your mystery and your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Today, uh, we're going to spend the vast majority of our time, mostly all of our time, in verses 9, in the first nine verses of the chapter, and that's because that's where I think there's a lot of focus and importance that we need to really grasp. And what we're going to look at is these three visions that we just read, and we're going to, as they were given to Amos, and we're going to see how they're interwoven together with the concepts of sovereignty, compassion, mystery, and grace of our Lord. And so let's look at the first vision of locusts here and just kind of unpack it just a bit and then kind of see some things in it. Actually, let's look at the first two visions. We'll see the locusts and the fire in verses 1 through 6. So the first thing we read about is Amos describing what he saw. And I want you to have this in your mind. He sees this. And it's vivid and it's and it's. You know, when we talk about visions, um, you have to understand that everything that needs to be communicated is there. And this is all by the hand of the Lord. So the Lord is the one communicating these things. He's communicating it in a vision. So Amos is seeing these things. But notice as he sees these things, he's given them to the people in word. So it's a vision to be communicated by word. And so as he sees this, what he sees is the Lord. You can almost picture the Lord forming in his hands uh, this locust uh, swarm. And this swarm is created for the one purpose, and that is to devour. Now what's interesting is about this is that the timing of this forming is particularly telling. Because it's a time when the spring pastures and the grain fields are, are, are growing. They're just beginning to grow in the, in the months of March and April. Now it appears by the statement that it was the latter growth of the king's mowings. And that whole thing of the king's mowings suggests that the king and his army, there's already been one kind of crop to come through. And what they've done is they've come in and taken their portion. Of, of this. And so they have all that they need. And so what's left then after they've taken the, pack, the tax portion is maybe a little bit in the early growing season. But then the second harvest is to come along. And it's really more important for the people of the land. Because it's the one that the people are gathering for to store up for the winter. And so its destruction would be deadly serious. 
Uh, This would be a devastating judgment, leaving incredible hopelessness in the, the world of the Israelites. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I've never seen anything like this. I decided while I was studying this that I would type up locust swarm. And I don't think I would ever want to be in one. I don't like creepy crawly bugs too much. It's just not one of my favorite things. But a locust swarm, if you've ever seen pictures of them, it's like, it's like a cloud. And they're just everywhere. And then I looked up pictures of locust devastation, and it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Everything is gone. Well, like in our world, we don't live in that. Now, people maybe in the Middle East live that way. Maybe some other, you know, smaller communities. Uh, I'm always amazed to see in Frisco these tractors like driving on the main highway. I'm like, that's interesting. You know, these two competing worlds, you know, that we have here as, as, as the land gets bought up. And some, there's still patches of this farmland everywhere. But like a, a friend of mine was at our house a couple weeks ago. And, um, and he, was, he and his wife were gardeners, and so Kristen was showing them their garden, our garden. And um, we were just talking about what it's like and everything, and, and, and Mike said this. He said, no one knows what a miracle it is. I don't get it. Because what we do in our culture today is we walk in the grocery store, and we see all that food there, and we think, that's great, and we just take it. But we never stop to think about just a moment, what an incredible miracle that is. It's because of this. I've been gardening for years, and I'll do this, and I'll do that, and nothing happens. I'll do that, and I'll do this, and nothing happens. And I read the books, and I look at it, and what I'm telling you is, it's a miracle every time it happens. I was talking to Mr. Henry that lives in this house right here, and he always gives me a couple little things, you know, and he said, I said, yeah, our garden didn't do too well this year, because nobody's garden did well this year. So that tells you there's this miracle that takes place. And, and we have no idea what it's like. We have no idea to be in this culture and to have everything gone. The swarm here is viewed as stripping the land clean. Literally, it reads literally, finished eating the vegetation of the land. And when it says that, it's not just referring to crops. It's re- referring to everything that is green. Locusts would come in, they would eat it all. This is what the Lord has planned. This is the judgment. An incredible, hopeless situation for the farmer, for the peasant, and even for the nation. You remember the kings and those people, they have theirs. But would they try to meet the needs of the people? Could they meet the needs of the people with the first harvest? No. Amos knows this. He sees the great danger. And in compassion, he cries out, Lord God, now notice his words here. Please forgive. Please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The form of the second vision is almost identical to the first one. Now, the difference is in the method of the coming judgment. The second vision, we see judgment and fire. And it is described as devouring the great deep and eating up the land. The vision of destruction is great, it's powerful, it's ferocious, it emphasizes enormous, destructive, and, and we're in, in, um, in the locust, there's some natural things that are going on there. And maybe in the fire, there's some natural things going on there. But the way it's described is supernatural. 
The reason why it is is because of the, the issue of drying up the springs and that type of thing. So this judgment would, you know, where the, 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 the locusts would take all the green away, it appears this fire would just take everything away. Richardson puts it this way, if Yahweh rained down fire, it would eventually dry up the, dry up the fathomless waters of the deep that feed the springs and would consume the entire land. You know, we just have, I mean, think about that, the power of that. The Lord God of the universe raining down fire in some fashion. And when I was um, a kid uh, working out of, in college, I worked at uh, 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 a Great Lakes carbon plant. And I think I've told you guys a little bit about this, but in this plant, it was, uh, I could make a lot of money by doing this for about 13 weeks. And so I was able to do it, and it was great. I made $13 an hour. It was awesome. And so, uh, but you got dirty for it because it was a dirty place, and it was hot and nasty and sweaty and a bunch of guys. It was just awful in some ways. But in this, in this plant, they had furnaces. Now, this was like a plant that was, it's like an area of land. <laughs> Where when we say a plant, it's just not one building. There's multiple buildings and multiple uses of those buildings that they would form this carbon steel. And so one of the buildings that I only got into a couple times was the furnace. And that was because it was so incredibly dangerous. And so you had to wear a hard hat. And um, it was big, huge, huge building. I mean, humongous. You could put like three football fields in this thing. And it had this you know, great crane that would move back and forth in this to lift up these carbon steel pieces that were anywhere from little rods to humongous tires that looked like it was wheels about this big to like these pillars that were like this that would be you know, 10 to 20 foot long. And in this, this building, it was a furnace. And this is where they heated up the carbon steel, and it would sit for weeks on end until it got to the right place it was supposed to be. And believe me, I didn't understand anything about the science on it. But what was cool is, is that one evening I was there, and it was kind of dark. I don't, I don't know why I was there at that late, but it was kind of dark. And um, maybe I know what it was. I was working second at that point. I worked first and second. And so as the guys were taking out some of, they were uncovering some of that steel, and it was like blue hot. I've never seen anything like that before. You could not, you, like from here to Bert, you were warm, like really warm. And so the guy said, watch this. He took a piece of paper, he wadded it up, and he threw it, and it caught on fire before it got to the steel. That's how hot it was. Now that's man-made. Can you imagine fire from the Lord. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And so as Amos is hearing this, he says, there's no more need for understanding here. He perceived the danger to Israel and he cried out immediately and listened to his plea this time. He says, please cease. Stop the fire. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. Now, I want you to catch something here. It's interesting that Israel's leaders thought themselves to be the top leaders in the top nation. They thought they were the stuff. But Amos sees how desperate this nation is in their weakness and in their vulnerability. They are not the foremost of the nation, but they're small. 
And through these visions, Amos was giving a true understanding of Israel's position and the position of any who are under the judgment of God. It's a frightening, frightening position. So as we consider these, these, the depth of what we see here in these verses, um, we could go again on and on about various insights, but I want us to look at just a few of, of the things that we'll see here. So let's first of all consider um, the Lord's sovereignty and justice. The Lord's sovereign um, and justice. To whom does Amos cry out here in the text? He cries out to God. And what's interesting that we should understand and see here, and, and, and the question is, is, was it not God who was the one preparing the plagues for the people? Now, why would you cry out to the God who is preparing the plagues for the people? Why would you not cry out to another God that maybe is bigger than him? Because Amos knows there is no other God. And he knows a little bit of who God is. Even though God is the one who is determined to carry out the judgment, He is the one determined to carry out the judgment, he and he alone is the one with the authority and sovereign power to avert the tragedy. So both visions show us, these two visions show us, God's sovereignty in His creation, in His freedom to act in and through created order. In this, both His judgment and mercy are seen and are real and true. The reality is, is that God is affronted by sin. And will be involved in executing judgment upon sinners. Now, I want to say this very carefully. That's why I don't like the phrase you know, that we use. And, and I can understand it, but we need to be careful. I don't necessarily like the phrase, you know, love the sinner but hate the sin. You know, we should love sinners. And so that should be, and we should hate sin. But when it comes to judgment, we have to understand that both of those are the same because God pulls out, pours out His justice upon sinners. So we need to be careful in that. And we need to understand it. And that's for us to understand. That's for us to get. The reason why we should get that is because it's important that we realize the, the place that people are in. Do we understand that reality? This is what the judgment looks like. And I'll speak a little bit more to this in just a minute. We need to understand that God is sovereign in executing His justice upon sin. He is affronted by sin. And in this, God is true to His just character. In other words, He cares about righteousness because He's righteous. He desires for His people to walk in His ways. He will not tolerate outward confession without an inward reality. That's what we see here in this passage. That's what was going on with Israel. There's outwardness that they're doing. Some, some of it, some of their hijinks is awful. But there's really no inward reality. And so what this tells us is wrath is real. Now, secondly, with his wrath being real. The way that Amos approaches him also reveals his wrath is real, but also is his incredible mercy. They're not in conflict with one another like they can be with us. They are perfect. 
And so we see not only His wrath, His, His, His being true to His just character, but we also see here His mercy toward those who turned to Him. And so God is true to His character for mercy for us as well. We see that in the passage. So understand, God is sovereign in justice, but we see that He's also, secondly, sovereign in compassion. So what Smith says, the commentator says, Amos' pleadings in this is not so much of an argument for action based on the covenant relationship established or Israel's rights, but on groanings for mercy, which the Lord can hear. In other words, all he's doing is seeing the, the desperation, whether it be Israel, and it could be any other nation that he's looking at, and he's saying, Lord, please have mercy. I see how horrible your justice is. I see how terrible it is. Please forgive. Please have mercy. And so he cries to the sovereign one for compassion. Now, in this first instance, he is in the first instance, he's calling on God to forgive and to bear the sins of Israel without repentance. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, if you look back in Job, Job also prayed for his family, which is interesting to me. And so it gives us an idea of we need to pray for those that do not know him to repent or those who are in sin to repent. And so as he prays, and as the Lord responds, understand that this is pure grace that we see here. Pure grace. Because he does respond. On the second instance, he uses the word cease instead of forgive. Which, in some ways, marks a further stage of him simply casting himself upon the mercy of God. He's not even asking for forgiveness at this point. He is just saying, God, have compassion. That's his heart. Look at it this way. And Scripture screams at us to see it. Boyce puts it like this. An appeal to justice will save no one. We always want to appeal to justice. I mean, you hear it in a culture all the time, I want justice. An appeal to justice will save no one. All will be condemned by God's justice. But in forgetting pride, and abandoning arrogance, and asking for mercy, Amos was heard. You see the two platforms there. I want justice. No, God, I want mercy. And what he's pointing out here is, ask for mercy. And he did, and God heard, and God acted. But do not presume that the judgment is deferred. Is you know, It's still going to happen, but not like we see here. And so as Boyce further says, what we experience in life as the result of God's judgments is always far less than we actually deserve. This does not mean that God is not unjust. Or, or this does not mean that God is unjust. Every sin will eventually be punished. And what we need to see is, is that it's either in Christ or in the person of the sinner himself. But this does not mean that God is merciful and that He customarily withholds judgment without giving warnings of it for long periods in order that the wicked might have time to repent. And so what we see in these passages is something very, very special, and that is that the sovereign God that we serve is compassionate. He hears. He hears. Thirdly, 
we see here that the Lord is sovereign and mystery. God's ways are mysterious and beyond reason. His choosing a people for Himself to keep them secure, you, you look at that and you go, why would you do that? But He did. Uh, we see Him to be full of compassion. You know, He even says in His Word, doesn't He? It's not a good thing for me it's, it's to, to pour out this justice. He, he does not want to see sinners in judgment, He says. And yet, He will be true to His just nature. And we see Him also in this passage relent of His judgment and in response to prayer of His, in response to the prayer of His servants, there is mystery there as well. So you see all sorts of mysterious things about God as you move through because He is a mysterious God. So when we think about prayer for a moment, um, while God could run the universe by making uh, mechanical rote judgments, instead He has chosen to rule this world and to work His purposes out in response to prayer. It's true here in the passage. It's true here and all through the Scriptures. He, he hears the prayers of Amos and what happens? It changes things. Isn't that interesting? It changes things. One of the most wonderful mysteries in the universe is that prayer changes things. God has so arranged His world that we have the ability to make significant choices, some good, some bad, which affect the course of history. One means God has given us to do this is prayer. Asking Him to act. Because He is all-wise and all-powerful and all-knowing, and He knows the end from the beginning, He is able to weave our request into His good purposes. But because um, God is a personal God, He invites us to share His work through prayer. He wants us to be a part of that. Bruce Ware puts it this way. God has devised prayer as a means of enlisting us as participants in the work He has ordained as part of the outworking of His sovereign rulership over all. The relationship between divine sovereignty and participatory uh, prayer, I think that's the word, participatory prayer, can be stated by this word, and that is participation. He wants us to participate with Him. Moitier adds this, Prayer is a means by um, which the Lord of all brings His determined purposes to pass. As a result of our prayers, some things will happen that wouldn't otherwise. As a result of our prayers, some things will change that wouldn't otherwise. And here's the thing that I want you to catch out of this, okay? Hear this. We're responsible for whether we pray or not. In other words, prayer is not just a good thing. Could it be a duty? A way in which we engage in the world which we engage with our holy God as He providentially oversees the outworking of things in this world. Our sovereign God is both perfectly wise and infinitely power, which is why you can pray with confidence. 
See, we pray things may change, they may not, but we know He's all-knowing. And He's all-powerful. And He's all-caring. And He will have compassion or He will have justice. But we can interact with the Holy God. Now before we move on, I want to speak briefly about the one kind of pink elephant in the passage, and that's His relenting here. Now, the reason why it's, it's this is because some people see this as, you know, this, and I can't get into it very much, but this openness theology stuff, you know. And it's, it kind of leaves out God's power and His almightiness, and it's, it's a little frustrating. But anyway, what we see here is, is that, you know, God is not wrestling between His justice and mercy. And He's like, okay, what do they think? Let me figure out what Amos thinks, and I'll make my decision. That's not what God is, has going on here. But in God's sovereign freedom of compassion for Him to relent, as it says in verses 3 and 6, this does not com- imply that He is inconsistent on His part. But it rather expresses His mercy and his desire to be faithful to his covenant. And so what this really, this word relent, you know, it could be translated, and, and God had compassion. That's really how it could be translated. Because that's what's going on here. And the scripture wants us to grasp as God reveals himself that he is patient and he's compassionate. So sometimes when our hearts are crying out for this justice, We need to see that in Scripture, justice will come. But thank God for mercy and grace. This principle runs through the whole Bible. For example, in in Genesis 18, remember Abraham and God's discussion over Sodom? Will you sweep away the wicked with just a few of these righteous people there? Will you still sweep them away? Likewise, it's the same in 2 Samuel 24, 15, where he restrained the angel of destruction from sending a plague upon Jerusalem over David's sin. This is what we see here over and over again. You see this God of compassion relenting, him showing his compassion to his people. That we would know that he's a compassionate God. And that no matter whether we feel like, we don't know what's going on, Lord, what are you doing? We can go to him. And so in all these things, His sovereign justice, His compassion, and His mercy, we have some very real practical applications for us today. Probably you've seen some of them already, or you've felt some of them already, or you've thought some of them already as we've been through this passage. So here's the thing. What troubles do you see coming your way? Compassion? Or crisis? Danger? love, what what do you see coming your way? When you do see crisis, when you do see disaster, when you see tribulation, when you see calamity, how should you view it? How should you view it? How might you look through the trouble that you you see coming your way and see the hands that have fashioned it and directed it? The New Testament tells us that God uses all things for our good. Do you see God? Or do you blame Satan? Do you blame karma? Do you blame bad luck or just life? That's the way life is. Look to Him. Knowing that He is the hand 
that forms all of these things, knowing that He is the sovereign hand, the, the one who is graciously in control of all things and limits such things on those who are His, will you respond to Him in, in a right way in His providence? And again, I, I can't leave this, but I would ask, you know, do you believe that prayer changes things? Do you need to make prayer a more serious issue in your life. By His grace, how might you get involved in engaging with God in the world through prayer? Uh, look at it this way. It was His hand that was stirring up those locusts, and yet it's Amos who cried out to Him, to that same hand, those same hands that would stop that. And so we had, can appeal to Him, our great God, now, I know we've covered a lot in this section. It's a lot to think about, a lot to take in, a lot to wrestle with. But I want to quickly go over the third vision. The third vision is the plumb line. And we'll see a view of grace here that flows out. Verse 7 notes that in the third vision, Amos saw the Lord was standing beside a wall and, and it was built with a plumb line. And he had a plumb line in his hand. Now, I don't have a plumb line tool Usually a plumb line tool is this very heavy object that kind of comes up and, and, and right in the very center of it is where a string goes. I couldn't even find a string. I had to use a rope. But I wanted to show you what kind of a plumb line is. Now a plumb line would be held and it wouldn't be moving like that. It would be still and some of that's the weight. But you would hold it up to something like this that Dave built and we would see that it's, it's fairly plumb, right? I mean, if you're right there, Mike, you could kind of see it's fairly plumb. Uh, Dave's not here. I could pick on him about, you know, if it were a little bit out there or something. But, but maybe you've hung a door. You know, I hung a door recently in the house, a barn door, and I'm looking at the floors. I'm like, how in the world can that be? This house, you've got to be kidding me. When I moved here to North Texas, a friend of mine who's a builder in North Carolina drove our truck, and he walked in the house. He goes, ah, I don't like all that stuff all over the walls. That tells me that none of this is plumb. <laughs> you know? it's, and it's true. I mean, if you've ever done any work in your house, you see that it doesn't quite add up. So in this passage, what God is doing is He's standing in the midst of Israel and He's holding up a plumb line, according to them. He's holding it up to them. And He holds it up and He, and he puts it there. And, and, and and while he's looking at this with the plumb line in his hand, it is his way of saying that he can check the uprightness of the nation. Then he can, he can measure them, so to speak. And what he tells us in the vision is, is that the wall had been built true to plumb. It started out correctly. And if you go back in your Bible, if you write this down in your, on your note page there, if you go back in Deuteronomy 7 where it talks about the chosen people of God, he says this, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Hear these words. The Lord has chosen you to be His people, a treasured possession out of all the peoples of the face of the earth. And he goes on to say, I didn't choose you because you were lovely or anything or better than anybody else. I just chose you out of my pure love for you. That's what he says. And then it goes on to talk about how he had redeemed them. He redeemed them. So when choosing them, he redeems them out of Egypt. He pulls them out of Egypt. He saves them. And so he pulls out his people. These are the people. And they're to be a holy people to the Lord your God. But if they're redeemed and saved, how do they know? How do they know how to be holy like God? 
Whoa, he gives them the word. So God had given his people his holy word. And he had given them this that they would learn how to please him. So what you have here, and you have to understand that what you have is the law of grace which saves and keeps. And so here in the Old Testament, I don't care what anybody else says, here in the Old Testament is grace. Grace is here. He chooses His people by grace out of love. And He doesn't give them a law and say, (laughs) you know, He gives them the law as a way to please Him. So the law was given in grace as well. It frames the existence of the people of God. Now, it's, uh, that grace is under the Old Testament covenant, which is a little bit different than the New Testament covenant, which is why they're being judged here. So do not miss that God applies the plumb line among His people here, not the world. So much of the Christian world today is worried about the plumb line out there when we ought to be worried about the plumb line in here. We need to be thinking about how God is measuring us. And so, His people, as we have read, as the account has been made through Amos, had abused the grace He had given them. The law was neglected, and therefore, the relationship with the Lord was rejected. Judgment was coming. Desolation. Waste. Sword. Exile. So let me ask you this morning, When the plumb line of God's holiness is applied to you through His revealed Word, when it's applied to your life and your ways, how do you measure up? So many times we think things are good, and maybe you've done this before. Uh, I don't even remember if I've ever laid wallpaper. I think I knew better. But I took a lot off. And as I've taken it off, I've noticed how terrible the job is. And what I've been told is, is you have to find a line, a straight line on the wall, and you have to start at that place and then do your room. Because if you try to start at the corner of one of the doors here, especially in North Texas, it will not be plumb ever. (laughs) And that's what happens, isn't it? We think we're on a straight and narrow line and so we put the wallpaper up, you know, stuff up in our lives and we keep going and we keep going and we realize this is a mess. I've been running my life through the wrong plumb line. You see, young people, the plumb line is the Word of God. This is the standard by which we live. And you know you can see where people have gotten off, can't you? where they, they, they mix in the Bible with a little bit of karma, or they mix in the Bible with a little bit of Eastern religion, or a little bit of Islam, or a little bit of Mormonism, or a little bit of Jehovah's Witnesses. And, and, and that's what they're doing, is they're putting up wallpaper. And in the end, when they're measured, it will not be good. We are measured by the plumb line. And so we're called to go into His Word, to be serious about His Word, to be thinking about it. But let me ask you the question again. When the plumb line of God's holiness is applied to you through His revealed Word, when is it applied to your life and your ways, how will you measure up? On that final great and terrible day of the Lord, 
when every individual of the human race will have to appear before the judgment seat and to face this one final test, the final plumb line of His holy word and character, and it's applied to all of our lives, will you be relying on yourself? Or will you rely on the carpenter? The master carpenter. Will you rely upon Him Because this is great news. This is incredible news. This is glorious news. That if you are in Christ Jesus, by His mercy and His grace and His work and His plumb line, if you are in Him, rejoice. Because you have been judged plumb. You have been judged straight. You have been judged square. You're level. Praise His holy name. Look to Him and rejoice in His grace. For the master carpenter has given you His perfectness. Let's pray.